0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by David Hurley to talk about the recent liberal NDP supply and confidence agreement and some of the concerns that he's expressed. David leads a public research firm. He's a longtime political consultant, liberal strategist, campaign manager, and more, but he is best known these days as the host of the most popular political podcast in Canada with both the Hurley-Burley... And the curse of politics. Now we're nothing but professionals here, so of course a conversation between two podcast hosts has audio troubles, but I swear it gets better as it goes, and here it is. David, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here, Nate. It's interesting to ask you questions for a change. It's it's nice actually to be liberated from having to have the right answer or unanswered to, to every question. You commented In your podcast recently, and then explain yourself to a greater degree on Twitter, that you have concerns about the recent liberal NDP supply agreement. You said, in fact, if you agree with me that Canada is best served by a liberal party that straddles the center and moves the country forward on a consensual basis, then recent developments should concern you. Now, I take it you're not going as far as the, I would say, absurd Paul Wells take that there's enough space in the political middle for a new political party. But you are raising concerns about moving away from the middle. So walk me through why I should be concerned about the supply arrangement that the government's just struck.
1: Well, in fact, I take the opposite view of what Paul Well said, which is that when the center disappears, it disappears entirely from the political systems. And so that 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 is my concern, which is that the Liberal Party has been the natural governing party. Said sometimes pejoratively by people and sometimes endorsively by people, but nonetheless, it's been that. Because it was the party of the centre. And that's where most Canadians are. They're moderates. They want a balance between social progress and economic strength. Uh, they care about jobs and taxes, and they care about health care and education. And so that's where people land. However, the dynamics of politics, the dynamics of democratic systems, the dynamics, frankly, of first-past-the-post, lead you toward polarisation. They drive polarization. And that's why if you look around at most democracies, they don't have an important centrist party. Their politics is polarized, whether it's in the states between Democrat and Republican, or in the UK between Labour and Conservative. And It's polarized around ideology. And some of those countries used to have a dominant centrist party. When it weakens and disappears, it appears impossible to reinsert it. So once your politics polarizes, the centrist party's gone forever. All that takes me to believe that the Liberal Party is both very important and extremely fragile. There will always be a conservative or right-wing party in Canada, and there will always be a left-wing, or, and maybe it's called the NDP. But there need not always be a centrist party in Canada, and you can't take it for granted. Um, and I think that right now, politics is so intense. That the forces of polarization are even stronger, and what I see in a lot of commentary is people that are more determined to stop, say, conservatives than they are to be for um, the liberal party or anything else. And so there's this sense that the other side is the enemy, and that forces you into into two camps. So what does all this have to do with the with the arrangement last week? Well, it may look benign, but it's a pretty important statement, and it's one that's not been made before. In Canada uh, at the federal level. And that is the Liberal Party and the New Democrats forming an an official alliance of some kind to govern. I admit it's not a full coalition, but nonetheless, it is a statement to Canadians that we can live together for the next three years. Neither one of us is, like the Liberal Party's not going to do anything in three years that would cause the NDP to vote against. I think it's really dangerous to the liberal institution to blur the brand that way, because there ought to be differences. There have historically been differences. And they're not, the liberals and the NDP are not exactly the same thing. And we may have looked a little bit more left in recent years than normal. And that helps to blur this distinction even further. And so as somebody that believes the liberal party is important, I'm just worried about it.
0: Let's talk about blurring the distinction because I don't think the deal needs to blur distinctions so far as we say these are our shared priorities. we don't agree on everything we're not going to agree on everything but these are the shared priorities that we can work together on and there are shared priorities if you look at the platforms from 2019 if you look at the platforms from from, from this past election in the fall there are clearly shared priorities that people who care as liberals and people who care as members of the NDP want to see the government act upon. Don't you think, or the problem that you are articulating, that blurring predates this deal? When I think of my first election in 2015, the NDP was running on a platform of balanced budgets, and we were running on a platform of modest deficits, largely to finance infrastructure spending. And there were Modest differences, frankly, between those two positions. Not a, a huge d- d- differential as as it relates to this commitment to fiscal sustainability, which has tended to be the great differentiator throughout history as between the two parties. in, in some respects, at least. we saw a change under Laden that then really was solidified under malcare. And in some ways, some might argue that and certainly in contrast to your view, that it's a lot of centre, that in fact, if anything, the NDP has moved to the centre and we're now battling for centre, centre-left in some respects?
1: Well, I mean, the centre is, um, the Liberal Party has traditionally defined the centre and we have used both of our opponents as foils to say, well, here's what the outside position is and this is what the moderate centrist represents. You know, I think that Leighton and Mulcair had a strategy to displace the Liberal And uh, so that's why Leighton voted against the Martin government in 2005, and that's why Mulcair, seeing a Liberal Party that was perhaps on its ass, dead, moved to the centre to try to defeat the Conservatives and occupy centre territory. So at that point, we were probably seeing the most centrist version of the New Democrats we'd ever seen under Mulcair, and a Liberal Party that was running a bit to the left. However, let me just talk a little bit about left and right, because I... I think because of my history with Paul Martin, a lot of people have taken my comment to be exclusively around fiscal policy, and they're not. Uh, You know, I was part of the group of people that urged Mr. Trudeau to run on a deficit spending promise in 2015 because I thought that's what the economy and society uh, need at the time. But if you think back to the 2015 campaign, as you were knocking on doors, how much about that campaign was about the economy? How much of it was about that infrastructure program? How much of it was about middle class prosperity we talked a lot about middle class prosperity in that campaign and not in and not just in in social program terms so i'm not i'm not so focused on the debt issues although we've been talking some really big numbers the last couple of years and we need to pay some attention to that i think but it's also the lack of general economic focus of the government on the wealth creation job creation growth side of the equation that I think the Liberal Party has uh, neglected a little bit, and then that is exacerbated by this deal. Now, let's come back to the deal. Let me put it to you, Nick. What was necessary about this? Why was this even necessary? If you were to be able to say to me that the only way that we could solidify our climate policies and make have them in place for the next few years to make sure that they were part of the firmament. The only way that we could secure child care in the same way, um, the only way we could have an expansion of dental, if you want that, is to cut this deal. But I don't believe that. I saw no evidence that the NDP were going to defeat us at any point for the same reasons that they signed the deal. They don't have any money. They don't have any ideas. They don't know really what they would fight an election campaign on. They weren't going to force one. So maybe it's convenient for the executive branch of the government to have this. But it wasn't
0: necessary, and it comes with risk. I don't know that I would argue on the grounds of necessity for a deal like this. But I see this as old-fashioned pragmatism. How do we get things done in the best interest of Canadians? And how do we? How are we most effective in getting those things done? And so, in exchange for a targeted dental care program, we receive support to deliver on our agenda for three years. That strikes me as a very, very good deal for the Liberal Party of Canada and for this Liberal government. That at times, I think the greatest criticism we have faced when we go back to the polls is you've made a lot of promises. Where's your delivery? And I can articulate the defense around the Canada child benefit and more. But many of these issues and climate action that you referenced is a really good one because it is a work in progress. I can articulate, you know, we took over the government in 2015 and projected 2030 emissions were 815 megatons. By the last budget, they were projected to be 468. That's a huge reduction, over 40% reduction in projected emissions, but we're talking about projected emissions. And so there is this sense of show me the reality today, show me the delivery today. And it's not so easy at the federal level. Sometimes policymaking in some of these areas takes many, many years and is incremental as I think you also highlighted the importance of in in your thread. And, and so, what I would say is, push aside this idea that it ne- it's necessary. It's not necessary. It doesn't need to be necessary. Is this in the best interest of delivering for Canadians? And is it in the best interest of a Liberal government to show Canadians three years from now that we've delivered for Canadians? I think so. And, and I, I'm, I'm not alone in so far as I, I did read Chantal Hebert's take, and she pointed to, and I, I share this view having seen it up close around the way we conduct ourselves in a minority parliament. But she says, The abbreviated shelf life and the attending short attention span of minority parliaments comes at a price and Canada has been paying it in lost public policy dividends. And she goes on to basically say, this is the next best thing to electoral reform. As someone who cares about electoral reform and cooperation across the aisle, I see this as not absent risk. And I take your point, there are potential risks. I think there are more risks potentially politically for the NDP and getting squeezed here. But I take your point about the risks to the Liberal Party being too associated with free spending NDP, as some constituents might, might see them as. But when we think of our own agenda and we look at the the core tenets of this deal, all I saw that was new is dental care. And that's a two billion dollar hit on an annual basis over the years and for a targeted program. And it lets us in a stable way deliver on the rest of our agenda. That seems like a good pragmatic deal. No?
1: What is that the Liberal Party wants to do that it doesn't think the NDP would have supported? It would absent this deal.
0: It's less about would they support us in the end? And it's more about, I think, the efficiency of getting it all done in a short period of time. Because the minority sessions I have seen outside of politics as, as an active participant, but certainly the minority session in the last parliament as an active participant, when it was pandemic related, when we, when we were in the, the middle of crisis, there was a right. great reach across the aisle, sense of collaboration and cooperation. But as soon as we departed from that, and we got back to our regular agenda, it became incredibly political, incredibly dysfunctional, I would say, and the agenda got toyed with. And and you could argue we were at fault in some ways at, at pressing on political hot button issues, but frankly... We saw a major delay, parliamentary delay on other issues as well. And so this allows us to cut through all of that bullshit in, in some respects, at least, and to sideline the conservatives who are the main irritant in getting our agenda through. And they could do that because we didn't have the ability to simply say, well, we're going to cut the three days we've had on our criminal justice bill. And we've had three days. We're going to actually work with the NDP to to put it, an end to second reading and to use house time effectively going forward on other issues. So could we have done all of the things otherwise? Maybe, maybe not. I I think we would have run up against timelines and a a difficult, uncooperative parliament. Are we going to be able to do more? I think yes. And and so it, it gets to that pragmatic, does this help us deliver on the agenda? And so is it necessary? No. Does it help us? I think yes. Okay. So
1: then that has to be weighed against whatever else the consequences of it are. And we're going to face this in real time. It's likely impossible for the conservatives to win a majority government in in the near term. I just don't see enough votes out there for them. But they can win a plurality of seats. They could have done that last time, and they could well do that the next time. With this precedent, do you think the liberals and the NDP are going to let them govern, or are we going to put together? I mean, this is a this this is a precedent for we have a shared governing agenda that's different from that governing agenda. It's not three different governing agendas. It's we have a governing agenda, and they have a governing agenda. So this road's coming at us pretty fast, Nate, about whether or not it's important to have a Liberal Party or whether it's more important. And, and by the way, I acknowledged in my tweet thread that lots of people don't care about the points I'm making. The number of people in Canada who care about the Liberal Party is pretty few. They may, 20 years from now, deplore the state of polarized politics in Canada and lament the lack of a centre. But right now, nobody cares about the Liberal Party. So yeah, everybody judges this thing on do I like dental care? Well, sure. I think dental care is a good idea. Kathleen Wynne's government was thinking about it. It's pretty expensive. It's more expensive than pharma, but nonetheless, I don't think dental care is a bad idea. I think that a lot of care needs to be put always toward the and it's getting more and more fragile. I mean, we had a near death experience in 2011 as a party, and you know we were rescued. By Justin Trudeau, who pretty much put the party on his personal brand back and carried it uh, and carried it ahead of the NDP uh, in that circumstance. I don't know what the future holds, and I just think that uh, we can't assume that this centrist institution and it requires nurturing. And I don't, you know, I think it it requires for a lot of the Twitter warriors out there that are very absolute in their views. Centrism implies some compromise that's distasteful. Compromise is a bad word these days. But centrism implies putting a little water in your wine to make sure that a broader group of people get on board with what you're doing. And, you know, things like this are a shortcut. People like left-right polarization because you can win more absolute policy victories. You win, you don't, you're not putting water in your wine. You're saying, here's the showdown. We believe in this, you believe in that. And and you and you win. But that's not been the Canadian model. And it's not been the liberal model.
0: Well, on some issues, though, and I'll use climate as an example, until such time as the conservatives get their shit together and understand that climate is a priority for Canadians and they put aside, they have a reckoning with their base. We are going to have polarization in our politics on that issue. And we have to go and win the day on that issue. And consensus building be damned in a way. We, we should support workers who are affected. We should support regions who are affected. But we can't we can't slow our timeline down and we can't ignore climate action for the sake of consensus building, I think. We've got to win the day on an issue like that. But I take the point that we can't be polarized on other issues, and particularly where there are opportunities to build consensus and be cooperative.
1: Even on climate, Nate, even on climate, it's not about building consensus with the Conservative Party. You can't talk to them about climate right now. There's no reasonable conversation. But I think there are still voters out there that we can have reasonable conversations with and try to
0: bring them along, right? Yeah, I would say in my experience, we try to, and and we can talk about whether it's Trudeau that himself is polarizing on this particular subject, because when you look at the language that he uses or the language that Jonathan Wilkin uses or or others use, it very much is to say we're trying to balance the interests of the economy and the environment. We're trying to pull them together together we get accused. I knock on doors and it's thrown in my face that we bought a pipeline, but David, we bought a pipeline. I mean, there there is an attempt to, to strike a balance. Sometimes I think, unfortunately, because that pipeline is not going to be worth the money we spend on it, but you know, there's, there are attempts to, to find that common ground and and to, and to do just that and to meet others where they are as much as we reasonably can. But my point is like there, the science drives the conversation in a more serious way. And we, and we've got to defend I think the science and and to demand additional action in other areas, there are fairness considerations where we aren't, we aren't following science per se. We're saying questions around redistribution and fairness. and, And we're in a, an ideological debate at that point as to what is the right redistribution and the right balance. And and on that point and i'll I'll use the example of pearson i said before i would i would use him as as my best example when it comes to pearson what do you say to the pearson government in 1963 And and let me set the stage okay so we've got public health insurance the saskatchewan model the ccf model the ndp model on the one hand and on the other hand we have preston manning's father ernest manning in alberta manning care it has the support of most provincial governments it has the support of the Canadian Medical Association, it has the support of the insurance industry and chambers of commerce throughout the country. And it is a fill the gaps, we are going to support low income folks, but we're going to have multiple private insurers, and it's not going to be public health insurance in the way that we have today. And you have a Pearson government, a minority government that works with CCF to deliver on something that is supported by social democrats, a majority of the Canadian public too, those but not support of many organizations that if you were in consensus building mode, if you were in, let's be this large centrist brokerage party, it may not have happened that way. It might be Manning care that we would have been after, but Pearson government partnered with the CCF and they didn't destroy the liberal party in doing so. If anything, it showed that the liberal party builds this country. Okay. what's well, a great example, but let's be clear about something right off the top. There was no formal arrangement between Pearson
1: and Douglas no formal arrangement between the Liberal government and the NDP. It was a typical minority. It was managed. Liberals put forward propositions just like 72 to 74, very similar circumstance where the Foreign Investment Review Agency was created and Petro Canada was created. These were clear things that were done to secure the support of New Democrats, but there was also things going on in those period of times that New Democrats were unhappy that Liberals were doing in both circumstances. So, It wasn't a formal arrangement like this. It was working with them. Medicare is a super interesting example because, you know, the history in Medicare is that when Douglas Bush, his successor, uh, brought it in in Saskatchewan, the place went into complete social chaos. Uh, The doctors went on strike and the government had to, for a long time, and the provincial government had to import doctors from India and other places around the world. You can Imagine in 1963 how well this was going over um, in rural Saskatchewan, and there was and the Liberal Party, a uh, provincial Liberal Party, which was the right wing party in Saskatchewan at the time, led the fight against it. Led the fight against uh, Medicare. By the time of the next election, and the NDP were at a, at the end of a run of about twenty years. In order to defeat them, the Liberals had to promise not to touch Medicare. In two years, it had gone from something that racked society right down the middle to uh, such a consensus point. It's an interesting example. I think that the Pearson government had that history uh, when they went into it. And while they knew that there were going to be vested interests and the liberal party, isn't about accommodating uh, necess- vested interests that have it, but it's about finding a consensus among people uh, that is larger. And, you know, I think the social agenda of this government is largely entirely admirable. I think that the uh, I think that the child benefit is a tremendous policy innovation in the country. I think the surge response was perfect, uh, generous, uh, incredibly timely, competently executed. I think childcare is an absolute must-do. And I'm not quarrelling with any of those, but I'm also somebody that sits back and says, I'm not Pollyannish about climate. I know that we have to do what we're doing. I also know that it is kicking out the underpinnings of the Canadian economy. And I wish that I saw a lot of thought going on about what was going to replace that economic driver um, for Canada. I know that as we spend all this necessary money that we have an aging population, that means that we're going to have additional costs there. The energy transformation is going to cost gazillions of dollars to do that properly. Our productivity and GDP growth has been declining and shrinking for a long time. Like this is not, people say this is an economy that's humming. Not if you're getting one of the jobs that's being created. Everybody knows these are lousy jobs now. Service jobs, gig jobs, not the kind of jobs that you build a family and a career around. So there's lots of economic issues as well that are as pressing in my mind as the social issues are. don't hear
0: about you hear about them in some ways and so far as but often cast in a in the context and i think in your tweet thread you highlighted this that i think it was relevant to the point of what it means to be a centrist evolves and changes when we talk about gig workers as an example or we talk about precarious work we talk about it in the context of a stronger social safety net and, and and strengthening the protections that those workers have, because what we've seen is a hollowing out in many respects of those protections as the nature 100%. of the work has changed in some in some contexts, at least. And so we are having that conversation about EI. Yeah, ref- I take your point that it's not... How do we create better jobs? How do we create better jobs? How do we create better jobs? Right. At the same time, in fits and starts, we see that, although I, I would say... There's been a strong emphasis on immigration to drive the economy not to say how do we create better jobs on that how do we create better jobs there's been an innovation agenda that i think one would rightly dispute or debate the results as opposed to the the intent because the intent certainly is to say how do we how do we make sure that canadian workers and and canadian graduates are going to be prepared for the future and that canada is a leader in whether it is clean tech or whether it is we're doing a study on quantum, the industry committee right now, but there are there are conversations about how Canada is well-placed in these spaces. But I take the point that how do we create better jobs across the board? How do we address housing affordability for Canadians, ensuring that earnings are increasing? So I take your point that there's a stronger conversation to be had there. It's interesting though, uh, not to belabor the Medicare example, but when I was reading about it, some of the articles highlighted you know, it was a key liberal objective due to the emergence of left-leaning reformers in Pearson's cabinet, Judy LaMarche, Walter Gordon, Alan McEachern, Maurice LaMontagne. There are these internal battles to the Liberal Party throughout our history. And it's to this question of what does it mean to be a centrist? Because it changes over time. And what it meant to be a centrist in the Pearson years versus the Pierre Trudeau years, which is maybe the leftist government we had in this country. And, and the last four of them. It wasn't
1: left-wing before the last four. Only the last mandate was left-wing.
0: Right, okay, okay. And then on a very different thing to be a centrist under Chrétien Martin.
1: Well, they really pushed the boundaries of centrism in the other direction. Exactly. They really pushed the boundaries of centrism in the other direction. No question about it. And it does evolve. It does evolve. I remember having conversations with the Provincial Liberal Caucus about $15 minimum wage uh, prior to Kathleen Wynne introducing that policy. And people worried it was a left-wing policy. Okay? And I would say to people, this idea of $15 minimum wage is supported by 40% of the women who intend to vote conservative. So that's a centrist idea. That's not a left-wing idea. And a lot of these things are changing. Attitudes about those kinds of labor issues are changing as a consequence of growing realization of precarious work, the gig economy, and the reality that jobs aren't what they use. So people are adapting to that all across the spectrum and looking for ways to to support that. So, yes, the center changes all the time. I would argue that, you know, Kretchen had a certain genius about him because you had and and longtime listeners will know that you don't hear that a whole lot. Uh But the uh, (laughs) but but Canadians were able to see the brokerage at work in that government. They were able to see the Martins and Manley at industry and uh, McClellan or Goodale at natural resources working on and focused on economic issues and driving economic growth and recovery. And they could see Lloyd Axworthy and Alan Rock and others pounding away on the social side of the equation. And they knew that there were regularly fights in that government about what to do. and. And disagreements. And so that's sort of a situation where people can see themselves in it and they see that important interests are being represented, brokered, and accommodated, and a consensus. Policy is emerging. I think that's almost it in its ideal.
0: To have it more visible then in that way. Because we've seen, and this is back when Bill Morneau was the minister, but there was a fall economic statement. There was $16.5 billion in foregone revenue. And it was for accelerating capital cost allowance and improving productivity and, and competitiveness in response to the Trump tax cuts. And so there have at moments in time very much been a strong focus of this government to address those issues, but maybe not as visible as sort of your Cretan Martin brokering put the push and pull within within cabinet and pe- people being as public in their disagreements or agendas as we certainly don't see that today. You don't see freelancing.
1: No, there's only one there's only one message that comes out of everybody in the government. There's no sense that there are different ideas that are being Weighed against each other inside the government. I'm sure that is true, but you never see any evidence of that. And 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 by the way, I'm I'm open to the idea that there's more going on than I know, and that part of this is a is a narrative issue and what the government chooses to talk about and how it chooses to bundle issues together. But I was telling you as a pretty informed viewer, this is the impression I
0: have. And it's it's an interesting impression too, because even when we talk about fiscal sustainability, and this is where this is why I'm a, a liberal fundamentally, because I, when Gore John's bill 216 comes across the floor to decriminalize all drugs. I'm I'm seconding that bill, whatever the government wants to do, they can do. But I'm I'm gonna second that bill. I'm gonna heavily criticize the government for not following the evidence to save lives. So I'm I'm happy to be critical up and down and, and to support the NDP to push the agenda on certain issues. But on on the core question of fiscal sustainability, my concerns, and I'll use two examples that I mentioned in response on Twitter as well. But when I look at the OAS increase. That is a policy that the Conservative Party has pushed us on at times. It's it's a fairly centrist policy. It touches a lot of Canadians. I think fiscally irresponsible to increase it. You mentioned the aging population. It's fiscally irresponsible to deficit spend to increase old age security. It was a huge expenditure in the last budget heading into the election, and I think a, a fiscally irresponsible one. Similarly, when we promised in the 2019 election to expand the basic personal amount. That was a fiscally irresponsible promise because again, it was deficit spending and deficit spending for current consumption without any clear return. But it was a promise that we made in response to a similar promise from Andrew Scheer. So if anything, when I, look, when I look at the irresponsible, what I see to be irresponsible spending or unsustainable spending, to be more polite about it, when I look at that kind of spending, it's actually been in response to fairly centrist political concerns about how do we reach the largest number of people and make the largest number of people happy heading into election time versus like $2 billion, I square that as against $2 billion on dental to deliver on our agenda otherwise or make it easier to deliver on our agenda. And I think I can more easily live with that deal than the money we just rushed out the door to respond to Andrew Shearer's election promise.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I just going to retreat to, I'm just going to retreat to my posture that this is about brand management and party management and institutional management. And that I hope that it was at least considered and that there are plans to distinguish us yeah, from New Democrats fair. as we go forward. Because as I said, I'm not against what's being done in terms of substance. And if, the Liberal Party wants to have a dental care program, I think that they should find revenue to pay for it, to be
0: honest. Okay, so so pause there, pause there, because I think that is a question that pre-exists this deal. If we want to do everything that we want to do as a Liberal government, if we want to reform the EI system, if we want a Canada disability benefit to really reduce poverty for people with disabilities, which... I would love to see happen tomorrow. And I know Carla Qualtro is passionate about it and would be a great policy. When along, It would be a great lasting policy alongside the OAS and GIS and CCB. It would be a, an incredible policy because there's a missing middle for working age Canadians and people with disabilities have an incredibly high poverty rate. So that's just one example. But there are any, you know, Pharmacare was on our list previously. There's massive retrofits that need to happen to do our jobs to reduce costs for Canadians, but also to address climate change. And on and on down the list, we've been very ambitious in our promise making over the the last six plus years. And even before we get to the liberal NDP deal on supply, there is a question of how do we do all of the things we want to do in a fiscally sustainable way? And I don't see how one does all of the things we want to do in a fiscally sustainable way without new revenue tools. At the same time, what I've seen in politics is people are incredibly skittish about taxes and and talking about taxes and and certainly raising taxes. And we raised taxes on the 1% income tax wise out of 2015. That was a very popular promise. Didn't raise a ton of revenue, but a very popular promise. We made some changes, I think important changes to Canadian controlled private corporations. It blew up in the government's face, politically, at least, or that was the perception of it and the way they managed the communications and consultation. Ever since that moment in time and that really difficult conversation, we've been skittish about talking about taxes, I think. Do you see a way and I I would have hoped this would have been a deal. I I said as much publicly, it would have been nice to see the taxation of extreme wealth on the table as part of this deal, as another liberal agenda item, but I think one that has massive popular support and then would, would also show that we can do things in a fiscally sustainable way by increasing revenue. But would that maybe, but that would have scared you maybe even more. I don't know. <laughs> well, I've, I've said, and I first said it to Stefan Dion,
1: that there, there's lots of support for increasing taxes on other people. I'm unaware of anybody who's ever been elected anywhere on a promise to raise taxes on you. So it, it's no, it's bad politics. But it is, perhaps, and, and taxing wealth, by the way, I think it is becoming a no-brainer because that's where the money is. It's not really in incomes anymore. Yeah. Uh, the discrepancy in society is between people who have capital and people who don't. And and so I think a tax on wealth, but I think we should also be prudent about what that will bring in in Canada. Canada is not the United States in terms of the absolute wealth that exists out there to be accessed. This policy makes even more sense. In the United States. But I think the core the core conundrum of liberalism is the one that you're articulating, which is as we become even more and more focused about fixing inequity in our society, we have to find a way to find the income to pay for those. That requires probably some distribution that's going to be divisive, some redistribution that's going to be divisive. That also requires growth. It requires economic growth of a kind we've not been seeing. And that's why the economic growth side of the story needs to be at least... I mean, we can put in all of these programs that we love. And, you know, 20 years from now, after we have no exports of oil and gas and a huge chunk of our population has retired, we're not going to be able to pay for them. That's just the reality. We won't be able to pay for them. And we'll hit some debt crisis. And some 2050 version of Paul Martin will emerge and have to cut all that shit back. And so unless we find. You don't want that
0: seesaw effect. So I think that's the, the emphasis on sustainability is a really sound one. And there are efforts like we're at the industry committee. We're looking at a critical minerals strategy. Canada has the benefit, the luxury of of having a number of critical minerals. How do we monetize those? They're going to be part of the sustainable economy in relation to clean technologies. So we could play a really significant role and, and monetize that really significant role. So it's not to say there aren't active conversations, but I think overwhelmingly what I'm hearing, and, and, I, and I think fairly, we have not communicated those steps and articulated a vision that is both of those elements in, in equal measure. We are articulating equity in a really serious way. People know Trudeau as someone who cares about reconciliation, someone who cares about climate, and someone who cares about fairness but not as someone who thinks about the economy in the same way. And
1: I think for me, the rubber really hits the road on climate because I couldn't be more supportive of a net zero target. I couldn't be more supportive. Of, of what the government's doing to reduce climate change, and maybe they should be doing more. But to me, the economic consequences to Canada are just shocking. And I don't think many Canadians realize that, or they'd be more worried about it.
0: And we should talk about it much more from an economic lens.
1: It's going to be a big deal. And I would think that the government would want to have, proceeding at an equal pace, right, an economic post-fossil fuel strategy for Canada, that that people could, you know... And I, Again, I must say things aren't going on. That was a hell of a big announcement in Windsor. Exactly. About auto. And uh, those things are going to be important. And that's part of the future. And I like all that. I I don't, if if there's, if there's a plan around that, I don't know what it is. And I don't know anybody who does know what it is.
0: Knitting together... And communicating what the overall strategy and, and, and vision is, is really important, especially when increasingly the message to Canadians, I think, has to be, we need to be at the forefront of making sure we're supporting this kind of transition because it's going to happen with or without us. And if it happens without us, we're going to be left behind and our jobs are going to be left behind. Our economies left behind. And so we have to actively participate in it and help people along towards it. And, and here is how we're going to do that. And if we don't articulate that, it'll be polarizing in some respects. anyway. I guarantee Michelle Rempel is not going to like that language of transition. I guarantee it. But if we don't talk about on the one hand, yes, there's a, a social policy aspect to it, supporting workers as they are affected by by change. But if we don't talk about on the flip side of making sure there are sustainable jobs in whatever the new sectors are going to be, and obviously EVs are an obvious one, but if we're not at the forefront of creating that economic opportunity, then we're missing the boat and we need to articulate that in a much stronger way. Point, point, point taken, I,
1: I I think. That's how much of a right-winger I am, Nate. I think we need an <laughs> industrial strategy, right? That's how much of a right-winger I am. <laughs> and,
0: and, and to that point, though, and, and it, it gets to a, a conversation of hopefully the budget articulates some of this, but I, I did want to emphasize just the importance of, of budgets because all of the angst, and I've gotten, uh, not a lot, I think I've got maybe one or two emails in my inbox. I'm, I'm Beaches East York, so it's not representative of everywhere necessarily, but one or two emails in my inbox saying, oh, you know what does this mean? I voted liberal, whether they did or not, I don't know, but I voted liberal and, you know, I don't like this deal. I didn't vote for this deal, this free spending NDP. And what's this going to mean for our finances? And to that kind of concern, I say, have that concern, be really scrutinize our policies and our budgets, but the proof will be in the budget, right? The proof of prudence will be in the budget. And I saw some analysis from Scotia to say, this will lead to X number of billions of dollars of increased spending because of this deal, and and look, if that's unsustainable and it's not paid for, and and there's no strong return, then people should be critical and people should scrutinize this budget as they would any budget, but with the lens of fiscal responsibility. and And there will be greater scrutiny, I have no doubt, because of the supply arrangement. But the proof will be there, and all of the angst is a little bit premature to me.
1: Yes, although I have to assume that there's no pill, poison pill in the budget that the NDP would find themselves unable to. Support and right. We're not buying another pipeline. We're not buying another pipeline. There's no corporate tax cut there. And you know, I mean, I'm not a fan of broad-based corporate tax cuts, to be honest. But there may well be circumstances where we want to be encouraging private sector activity in a way that the NDP don't appreciate or support. So, I mean, yes, the proof will be in the budget, and the proof will be in the next several budgets. Yeah, I guess I'm just assuming that uh, since the deal is a no surprises deal, and it's intended to last for the next three years that the two sides have discussed in broad terms what to expect.
0: And the challenge will be where uh, an issue arises. I'll use the Emergencies Act as an example, because I would have voted against the invocation of the Emergencies Act, but for the fact that they made it a confidence vote. If there is ever a moment where the NDP caucus and the NDP leadership is skittish about something and the liberals deem it to be a confidence vote. That's when the rubber hits the road and and we see what this deal is is made of. And and the deal may well fall apart if, if that occurs because I, as an individual and as an individual who promised Canadians that I would support confidence matters. And when the government makes it a confidence matter, whether I like it or not, my disagreement didn't amount to non-confidence and I'm going to vote in accordance with the confidence vote. That's the promise I made to my colleagues and Canadians. The NDP have made no such promises, <laughs> so they are much freer to walk away. Although they were much more supportive of the Emergency Act, so there you go. Yeah, I just, you know,
1: my fundamental takeaway on this, Nate, is I don't want to leave Canadians with the impression that there are broadly two choices in their political system. Yeah. Right. And that there may be nuances between in in one of those choices, but it's fundamentally one choice there and one choice over here. And I think that's a lot of the pressure of our political system, and I think that the actions of the government are exacerbating.
0: I would say that risk exists in part, as I said at the outset, because the NDP have moved to our position in many respects, and partly because they or to no position. I
1: really don't know what they're about. I have no idea what they're <laughs> fundamental.
0: So more purpose, their is,
1: purpose is right now. I mean, I, I, you know, until this deal was announced, I had no idea what Jack Singh cared about. Well, and, and um,
0: my frustration is like I, I mentioned the opioid crisis and decriminalization already, but there's an issue that Jagmeet Singh ran on in his own leadership, and that it's not a line in the sand on a deal like this is is a frustration for me because yeah. I would think you know if this is if that's something you ran on, and and obviously you've got a, a massive number of organizations from CAMH to the Canadian Public Health Association, Canadian Mental Health Association, then the numbers we we just saw the numbers most recent, 27,000 Canadians have died since early 2016 because of a poison drug supply. You'd think that you've got all the ammunition in the world to say, here's my line in the sand. You got to sign on the dotted line for this. And then it's not there. So I had some frustrations that it didn't go further actually. But in the end, I think we are judged by what we deliver. And so if we come out of this deal Three years from now, I'm able to go back to my constituents, or we able to go back to Canadians as a government and say we delivered on our climate action, a more ambitious approach to reconciliation, we supported workers to a greater degree, we've got the beneficial ownership registry, as a matter of fairness and tackling that extreme wealth, we've got an approach that says childcare is not only delivered on but protected in a serious way. And housing, I think, is going to be a massive challenge, and I don't think we have an answer for it yet. Although it's highlighted in this deal, but I don't think we have a ready answer for it yet on scale to the crisis. But what are we doing seriously on housing? I mean, I yeah. you know I, like I. I, I look in the budget to I see commitments, questions, but that's fine. You can ask me.
1: I, I, I'm supposed to see, <laughs> I see commitments to 35,000 homes and stuff. Like what the fuck is that?
0: So housing. Here's about 35,000 homes. In the last platform for the first time, since I've been doing this, we took housing seriously as seriously as the other parties did. Potentially more seriously than the other parties. If you look at the mm-hmm. series of promises, but is it sufficient to address the problem? No. And, and the real challenge is on the one hand, the federal government isn't in a position to build supply directly and so there's money on the table the housing accelerator is good to break down barriers break down NIMBYism, and to probably an insufficient spend 4 billion spread out across the whole country we promised to address the excessive financialization of housing which is important but the promises were quite vague i would say we should probably go the new zealand route and make it much harder for investors to get into the resale property residential space We should tamp down on demand in that way. We should also.
1: It's not shelter now. It's an investment. If you're a Canadian. Exactly. Looking to grow your bank account.
0: Exactly. There's nothing you could invest in that makes more sense than real estate. And what New Zealand did is they basically said, not only as a matter of tamping down on demand, but principally to address the stability of the entire housing market. If the market were to go sideways, all of these individuals who have extended themselves significantly by way of additional investments. They're the dominoes that will stress the system to a much greater degree. And so they've increased very simply. I hope we do this, but they've increased the down payment rules and the stress test as relates to investors. We could go further. We could actually increase the capital gains taxation rate for investment properties. I don't think we'll go there because we're scared of taxes, but you could do things like that. Uh, So are we going to be as ambitious as we need to be on housing? My worry about housing is just the point about delivery. Actually, I'm able to go to Canadians next election. I guarantee it and say we've delivered on childcare in a serious way. I'm going to be able to say we've delivered on climate in a serious way. We could have a debate about the industrial strategy, but overall, we've really moved the needle. For the first time in my lifetime, we've got a government that really cares. On reconciliation, it won't have been perfect, but we have, again, first government in my lifetime that has seized this issue and moved the issue forward with substantial
1: security. That's an issue that operates outside of politics entirely. You do that solely because you care about it. There's no politics.
0: In my, in my neck of the woods, there are some politics to it. Like the clean water is a real criticism point for, for any government. How many people vote on that in your writing? Not not a ton, but it, it is about, have you met the promises you've made? So if you've held this out as yeah. a really important thing for you, and Trudeau has, he has staked his reputation to this issue, have you delivered on yeah. it or is it just words, no action, right? So I think there is there is politics to it as a matter of credibility and, and who the leader is. And, and But I take the point that, that you do it and, and you should do it because it's the right thing to do. Housing, though, I do worry that we will set up expectations and we do this, we're helping first-time homebuyers, right? And then it's like the promise probably isn't a great promise to begin with because it exacerbates the demand challenge. But on the other hand, it also is a minute amount when it comes to the amount that someone's actually faced with buying as a first-time home buyer. And if they don't, if they can't borrow from parents or family, that first-time homebuyers tax credit is not going to help anything really. So I, I worry we set expectations. And then because of the nature of the crisis, because of the nature of the intergovernmental challenge, we fail to meet them. So that I actually worry about the delivery side of that. Because with my with my thesis being the only thing that matters is delivery in relation to this deal, housing is actually the one area that I would, I would worry about.
1: I, I've not heard anybody articulate a solution to the housing situation, to be honest. But let me just, this whole thing, coming back to this whole thing, to sum it up, the problem is that we're 30% the problem is a liberal party at 30%, right? And this is, the party needs a big rethink about this, because if we are a 30% proposition, then some sort of merger with the NDP is probably inevitable then. And if we are, but if we we're a 40% proposition, we're the old liberal party. So how do we get back to winning roughly 40% of the vote in this country, which is what a centrist party requires set and dominate.
0: The- I would prefer to see electoral reform and to see many parties exist in, in the ecosystem. I think it'd be healthier. I think it'd be better. But I would say a couple answers in the context of first past the post. And I, I don't agree that we would see a merger sort of that is inevitable. I don't think Leah Gazan would ever sit in a liberal caucus with Francis Druin. I just don't think they agree on enough things as far as it goes. Ocasio-Cortez is sitting in a caucus with Manchin. She is. She is. But she would have joined the NDP if she were in Canada. And she operates in the system that she was born into. But when we look at what the Liberal Party could do, I think your one tweet you had around independent thought within the party, and you said a third, I come from an era when one could be critical of the leadership of the Liberal Party from time to time and still be considered a liberal. I think that's a really important point there. It's a destructive point in some ways taken to an extreme. But I do think Embracing that disagreement, that reasonable disagreement, not pushing people out of that space is, is incredibly important. In fact, embracing more people in that space, we need Wayne Easter to sit in a caucus alongside Jenica Atwin. We need to we need to embrace that kind of disagreement and, and different perspectives that then mold the ultimate outcome. And, and there is consensus building within the party. I take the point; it's not visible enough. I think uh, that you made, but I I do think we want to be that party, in, in which case we can't push people away. And and at times, I think if you're not with us you're against us there is that mentality in all parties but including in ours it's a different mentality between a movement and a political party and you have more experience certainly than i do as it relates to uh longevity of involvement in party politics and uh, having seen parties operate in different ways potentially your first point was that i'm old what was your second point (laughs) (laughs) independence on the one hand but the second thing and you've made this point in your own podcast and i think in in other forums as well but the willingness to speak to the entire electorate and to listen to the entire electorate, to engage with the entire electorate. And in my riding, we knock on every single door. We will hear from every single person. And some people don't like us. Some people don't like the prime minister, but they like me. Some people don't like me at all, but they like the prime minister. And if you don't talk to every single person, if you do the tiers, if you only knock tier one and get out the vote of people who really love the liberal party, you are, probably missing votes on that particular election day, but you're definitely missing the opportunity to build relationships and to build your voter base into future elections.
1: I think all parties are doing this and it's partly technology driven, but we've given up largely on persuading people. And all we're trying to do is identify and motivate the people that already agree with us. We've given up on trying to persuade.
0: Exactly. On the independence point, so you are not in a position... Where you're as well, you are now with your podcast, right? You are you are a public, publicly critical liberal. You are a liberal member who cares a lot about advancing the party, but you're not shy in your criticism. I think a lot about how I go about criticizing and uh, and what it means for the party. How do I advance an agenda without undermining the overall ability to garner support? And it's not always easy. Do you think through those challenges in the position that you sit now, or you are freelancing enough that you don't have to worry about it so much?
1: Well, you worry about it. You worry about it in various ways. I don't want to ever be seen by liberals to be a bad liberal. I mean, it's so important to me, the party, the institution, that, you know, and and it's happened to me from time to time that I've been uh, seen badly in my own tribe, as the NDP call it. Always feels uncomfortable to me. I do feel, and I've had some personal experience to this regard, that the people running this government are particularly disinterested in dissent and um are really comfortable only when everybody's singing from the same song sheet both internally and externally so i yeah i feel i'm treading i feel i'm always offside and i feel a little bit like i'm alienated from it which is not not a great feeling but at the other hand i'm i'm at a fuck you age where um nobody can do anything for me or against me anymore and i'm just you know you know. I, I try to do it constructively too, and and maybe I, I I can acknowledge that I was hot last week on the podcast. It just got me, it just got me going. The more we talked about it, because after the 2011 election, I sat there. I was part of the insiders panel on uh, on CBC's election coverage, and it looked to me like that could well be the end of the road for the party. And I thought that that was a pretty horrible circumstance for the country. And I did what I could. I went out and helped with the liberal campaigns in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and Atlanta, Canada. And I helped with Kathleen Wynne in Ontario. And I helped with uh, Justin Trudeau. And, you know, the institution bounced back from 2011. A lot of people put their shoulders to the wheel all across the country. And, and the institution bounced back. But to me, that's always been an illustration of the fragility of it how easily and quickly it can disappear and nobody would mourn it at the time. It would only be in retrospect that you would say, you know, Christ polarized politics is so destructive. And why can't we have a central meeting ground where people can have a conversation and where we can find some consensus to move forward. That's when you'd miss it. And history tells us that you can
0: no longer create it, but you can defend it. And my staff member and good friend, he was involved with the liberal party before I was, and he was a riding association president in Niagara and, and long involvement dating back to his grandparents in Kingston. And so there's this familial history, but he was very actively involved. And my family history was NDP. I never felt all that comfortable with the NDP in part. I remember when I was an undergrad attending an event with Andrew Horvath, cause she's been around that long and Jack Layden and All politics can have sort of a cult-like aspect to it of just the rallies are like this in general, but uh, there is that sort of what a wonderful team we are and and everything the leaders are saying is perfect and wonderful and rah, rah, rah. And that I'm uncomfortable with from the get-go just as my general sensibilities. But I remember a woman in the audience saying, we need to change the whole system. And she just railed against capitalism for awkwardly for two minutes or something. And Jack Layden very thoughtfully sidestepped the, as politicians are want to do and said something else and said very nice things about thanks for your constructive feedback and whatever else. I don't know exactly what he said, but he then came back at the end, a rallying moment. And he said, just like the woman said, we need to change the whole system or something along those lines. And I was like, I don't think this is for me. I just like, I don't, I, just, I, I, walk, I literally walked out of the auditorium. And I was like, I'm done. And I was like trying to dip my toe into politics at the time. Is this, is this for me? And it wasn't for me. And, and there are moments like that in the liberal party where I've, I've felt that at certain times where it's a little too much for me at times too, just the partisan nature of it. But overall, when I look at the serious people in the party, the serious people that have helped to build the party and have contributed to the party and have stolen ideas sometimes from other parties, but have used the Liberal Party as a vehicle for building the country with with great seriousness. Like if I were to define the difference, is everyone in the party serious? No. But is everyone in politics serious? No. But overwhelmingly, this is the party that is the serious party that gets shit done. And that was really what drove. If I want to make the biggest difference, and Pearson actually is a good example of when I looked at who in history and Canadian politics, I would look up to, it would be someone like that who was able to, an incredibly serious person who used pol- politics as a vehicle, the Liberal Party as a vehicle to advance liberal values, but to build policies that have stood the test of time for this country in a really serious way. And we we, we talked we didn't talk about the Canada Pension Plan even, but we just talked about Medicare. Don't yeah. You know how the story ends though? You know how the
1: story ends? Pearson's cabinet threw him out because he was going to lose to Stanfield. After all that, the most acclaimed government in Canadian history, he was going to lose to Robert Stanfield and his government knew it. And so they told me he had to leave. And that's how we ended up with Truth.
0: And that seems OK to me, too. Yeah. Individuals at some point, I someone will tell me that. <laughs> and, I will, <laughs> and I will pass the torch to someone else in Beaches, East York. And <laughs> I, I do think people stay in this role sometimes too long. And so credit to Pearson for they're like boxers.
1: And, and Politicians away. are like boxers. Always one too many.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I think, but that's all, you know, as, as it should happen, people passing the torch and, and as a really good example, one incredibly serious person passing the torch to another really serious person, both of them built this country in a serious way. And, you know, you can say maybe I was overly critical, but I think it comes from a good place to say, we need to defend this institution because it, it has mattered and it, and it should continue to matter. Yeah, I agree
1: with you a thousand percent. That's where exactly I'm coming from. You, by the way, are a great member of it. And you're a great illustration of it, just in your manner and the way you conduct yourself in politics. You're a perfect illustration of it.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Um, not everyone feels the same way, so I appreciate it. And, I, <laughs> and uh, I, I hope that I've convinced you, at least in some measure, that the deal isn't so worrisome if we, if we conduct ourselves in the right way throughout the deal.
1: You haven't convinced me of anything about the deal. What you have convinced me of is that there are people like yourself who may be aware of these threats and aware of what the risks are and understand the Liberal Party and what its real positioning ought to be. And we'll fight for that within the context of that. And that's the best we can ask for right now. And no, there are no facts in the future. This doesn't inherently have to lead to anything. But I think if the Liberal Party doesn't find a way to keep differentiating itself from both of its opponents, it will weaken.
0: And interestingly, because out of the emergencies Act debate, I had a few colleagues from the Conservative Party write to me and say, "Great speech!" And you know, everyone's happy as a Conservative when critical of the Liberal government. And you know, I, I get the occasional congratulatory note when I disagree. But my response back was to say, "Actually, you hold a really important role right now because your party needs to hold the center in the course of the leadership vote." And so I think they are having a, a more serious conversation because it's happening to them right now as to how do they hold the center? Can they get back to the center? And Aaron O'Toole, I actually thought was a very good leader for them in that moment, because I was hoping he would have a couple of election cycles and he would help them hold the center. And now they're back into the thick of it. Brokerage politics in first past the post system is fragile in part because on our end, you would be worried about what's the difference between the NDP and on the conservative end, which we've seen south of the border. You can't allow a particularly rabid base over. The party because then you do a disservice to the rest of the country.
1: Right. The differences with a conservative party is you can't fuck it up so badly that it will disappear. Right. Because there's an inherent base to it. So no matter how badly it's led, managed, all that shit, whatever name it re-emerges in, it will re-emerge. There will be a conservative party. And the same is true on the left. It where it's not true, is the center. Yeah. That has to be a conscious continual act of creation of a center because it doesn't exist
0: naturally in politics. And your worry you would hold out the PC alliance pact and an ultimate merger as a, an example of the worry on the left and then you have the two polarized left and right. Yeah. That's right.
1: Listen, there was talk of it, there was talk of it after 2011, there was talk of it before 2011. Prominent liberals, prominent Democrats have come out and spoken in favor of this. There are lots of people who think this is the way it should go. That's just not me. But there are lots of people who think this is the way it should go.
0: Yeah. Well, for us, the main thing is to be wary of some of the concerns you've laid out. But ultimately, I think to say, and I saw some people reply on Twitter to say, how are you going to be able to deliver on this by 2022 or by 2023? And how are you going to work with the provinces? And it's going to be a real challenge. I worry more about those challenges in some ways right now, because I do see the proof will be in budgets and the proof will be. What we deliver on and so it's those practical challenges that would keep me up at night more than the challenge to the liberal party at the moment because I think actually the politics will cut the other way and if we are able to use this deal to deliver in a serious way it'll be to our benefit not detriment but we will we will find out in 2025. <laughs> and while we're talking about centrist politics
1: Jenny Byrne sends me videos of Pierre poliev's rallies which are full of thousands of people that are enthusiastic and cheering and yelling and there at 10 o'clock in the morning that's not centrist politics but that's motivated politics yeah and i don't see him as the most particularly electorally attractive person but that may just be my perspective but as somebody that lost an election to stephen harper i don't take anything for granted i've lost to stephen harper and i've lost to doug ford so I don't ever think that Pierre Polyev can't get
0: elected. It's funny because he levels the accusation against Trudeau as being drama first and, and substance second. And I always actually see the attack landing most squarely on Pierre himself. But the the tad performative himself, isn't he? Yeah. He's Just a tad. But the issue, one of the issues he's latched on around housing and it, and he presents no solution but he articulates the problem, I think in a really powerful way that we do need to respond to as a generational challenge because I I do worry, the challenge is not it's not something that we are solely responsible for or even principally responsible for, but if we don't address the challenge, if we don't identify the same challenge and, and if we're not seen to be really serious about solving that challenge, it creates too much space for, I think, a Pierre Poilev to articulate the challenge himself and and to
1: define it. Especially to young
0: people. Especially to young people uh, who are going to give up on home ownership otherwise. I just worry that Pierre is so in love with the crowd and in love with the growth of, of his own movement, as it were, playing footsie with the, with the World Economic Forum conspiracy shit, the... Even his his actions around the convoy—it's not to say it will damage him electorally. It may or may not. It's such a dangerous space to play in. So I hope he comes through you to Jenny to Pierre. Make the guy come to his goddamn senses. You know, (laughs) he can win without it. I don't know why. Like he can—he could win without it, and it's going to hurt him in the long run. So he's cut that shit out.
1: I'll do my best. I'll pass it on. I'll
0: invite him on the program. You know, (laughs) (laughs) he won't come on mine. So maybe he'll come on yours. I I did want to ask how is it you landed on moving out of the shadows as it were, to being more public and and running a podcast, very, the most successful podcast from what I can see in Canadian politics. Many of my colleagues regularly listen and I know many more do as well. And it, it's influential in our politics now, I, I think in some ways. And did you ever, was this intentional in some ways or you just started it and you ran with it and, and here we are. You're
1: really unintentional. I mean, I, Stumbled into the whole podcasting business. I had some friends who convinced me that I could have an interesting podcast. And so we decided to start one. And at the beginning, the Hurly Burly, we didn't really know what it was. We thought it would talk about things that were interesting to me. So at the beginning, we had sports figures on and we had music figures on and pop culture people on. Turns out that the only thing that any number of listeners are really interested in me talking, listening to me talk about, is politics, Um, uh, which which makes perfect sense. If you want to hear Robbie Robertson be interviewed, there's likely people that can do a better job of it for the same reason that I can do a good job of politics. So the Hurley-Burley focuses very much on policy and politics and trying to deconstruct that a little bit for people. And and then the Curse of Politics podcast is, is you know, a fairly cynical enterprise where uh, we have people on who have been at the highest levels of campaigns, known what kind of, and governments, known what kind of decisions you have to make and known why you make them. And all we're trying to do is demystify that for people, right? Why are people making the decisions that they're making? What objectives are they trying to accomplish with this? Often things don't appear to make any sense to people, what people in politics do, but they do make sense. There's a reason why they're doing it. Almost always there's a reason. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. It it isn't really supposed to be a format for me to expound on the future of liberalism. It's supposed to be for me to uh, dissect tactics, but sometimes I can't help myself from caring about things. And so when we were discussing the tactics of the uh, confidence and supply agreement, uh, but no, I'm not on there as a general rule to try to tell liberals where to go. I mean, one of the things that I reacted uh, one of the things uh, that I didn't react negatively to, that I got a lot of in feedback, was "you're fucking old, okay?" and this has all passed you by. And I don't—I'm uh, not known for false modesty, and I'm not going to have any here. I—I I, I don't discount the fact that that's true. I loved music, and that's passed me by. I loved pop culture, and that's passed me by. There's no reason why politics may not have passed me by and that younger people are more in touch with all this. I have to acknowledge that. But at the age of 60, given what I know and given what I've seen, this is what I think.
0: Well, and there are more of you that vote still. So it, it's still, it, the perspective is still a welcome one. I would say in some ways, some of the brokerage politics, I, I think you see greater support for electoral reform among younger canadians I, I, Some of this idea of compromise and brokerage politics, is not is anathema to uh, younger Canadians. And, and, and even to me, sometimes I would say, we've put too much water in our wine, this is nonsense, this is gonna undermine our overall objective and we're doing it for politics just to get elected and, and it's really frustrating. I think that turns off that sort of cynical view of putting policies forward just for the sake of electoral fortunes is what turns many younger people, people in general off, but younger people off. At the same time, I, I think you, you already articulated it just if we don't want this seesaw, this pendulum swinging back and forth between building social programs, dismantling social programs, ignoring fiscal sustainability is a mistake, ignoring growing of our economy is a mistake. And so you need to do both and you need to articulate both. And if you're not doing that, then then you're, you're missing an incredibly important part of the picture and you're not going to speak to enough Canadians ultimately. Uh, point well taken on all that. Uh, despite the fact that I am very glad to have seen us strike the deal, and uh, <laughs> and otherwise, I, well, get that dental care done. It's an important thing. Yeah, yeah, and I and I appreciate you joining me. It's nice to ask you questions. Well,
1: it was a pleasure being on, and uh, I'm really enjoying getting to know you and watching your career. So carry on. And uh, you know, when people talk about leadership, your name should be
0: mentioned. Well, oh, I appreciate that. I'm more concerned about making sure my, my kids get to school on time than those kinds of ambitions, but I, I, I do appreciate that all the same. Thanks for having me on, Nate. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. It feels like I've been at this a while now, but it's always good to sit down with someone who has the real breadth of experience that David does to hear his perspective. If you haven't listened to David on the Hurley Burley or his panel show, The Curse of Politics, I highly recommend that you do. And I also highly recommend that you stop whatever you're doing right now and rate this podcast on your platform of choice. It's helpful to keep growing our audience too. And with that, until next time.